someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short chew. But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Shochu Pros Podcast. This is our first main episode, Shochu 101, where we're going to cover how distillation arrived in Japan, the eight major shochu styles, how these styles are made, and how best to drink honkak shochu in the comfort of your own home. And of course, there will be a whole lot more about all of these things in our future episodes. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, coming to you from Tokyo, Japan. And with me, as always, recording from his lovely home in Fukuoka, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu professionals. We're both published authors about Japanese drinks. And we're both diehard baseball fans. We've been exploring these amazing drinks for more than a decade. And we are very, very, very excited to be able to share them with you through this podcast. Please be sure to download and subscribe to the Shochu Pros podcast on your preferred podcast app. Or you can download episodes directly from our website, shochu.pro. So, how are you doing, Stephen? I'm doing well, Christopher. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Um, I cannot believe that we are actually doing this. <laughs> we are. It's uh, been a long time coming, and I'm, I'm very excited. I've been a big fan of podcasts for a long time. So having my own is certainly exciting. I've been a guest on quite a few episodes of different shows both in Japan and in the States, but this is my first foray into actual podcasting. I think my friend uh, Eric Conan would be so proud. <laughs> that's that's funny. Yeah, because you often do talk about the podcast that you really like. That's amazing that you've never really just sat down and hammered one out yourself. Yeah, it had been intimidating. You know, it's equipment and editing and all these sorts of things. And we finally decided to bite the bullet and give it a shot. So here we are. Well, let's let's get right into it. Yeah. Let's um, jump right into our favorite drink, Honkak Shochu. That's right. And really to set context, I think, you know, I hope you'll indulge me. I was a history major in college, so I always like to understand where things started, you know, the sort of the origins of, of things and distillation, which is how spirits are made. It's also how perfume is made, actually. It's, it's the process of extracting alcohol from a fermentation. And that process actually began in Persia centuries and centuries and centuries ago. Apparently, for a long time, people didn't actually drink the spirit that came out of the still. And that's probably because if you drink what comes out of the still directly, it's poisonous. At least the beginning of it is that, that what they call the heads, right? And that's probably going a little bit too far. The Persians were not drinking the spirit. That only started in, we believe, Italy, actually thousands of years after distillation technology was developed, did people begin to drink it for pleasure. And it was actually Italian monks up in the mountains in the Italian Alps, apparently, were the first people to figure out you could actually drink this stuff and enjoy it as you would wine or beer, or that sort of thing. And then basically, distillation technology ended up expanding around the world during the age of discovery. Right. So at this time when people were sailing around the globe, circumnavigating the globe, the trade routes were being discovered and all that sort of thing, technology for distillation actually was part of that exploration and that discovery. 
all around the world, which obviously is how it ends up in Asia. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how it got to Japan. Oh, sure. Uh, this distillation technology, of course, was traveling with merchants all over the world. It was obviously a very valuable piece of technology that was going to both be useful in terms of creating product once, once uh, these merchants arrived at distant shores. It was also going to be useful as a token of trade. And it wasn't very long before spirits were a major commodity at the various ports around the world. You had sailors from all stripes searching and scouring the markets at the ports for any spirit they could get their hands on. The more potent, the better, I suppose. It, we think that it's, I guess, there aren't any really clear records from you know 600 years ago, but late 1400s, I guess, maybe early 1500s, we're looking at distillates arriving in what is now considered to be Japan. And the boundaries have changed over time, as uh, other people who are really up on their history will know. But spirits came to Japan, and they were obviously very much in demand. And it wasn't very long before people in Japan figured out how to make their own spirits. Eventually, and I'm uh, obviously I'm simplifying to a gross extent, and I apologize, Stephen, as, as a history major, you must be just like <laughs> clenching your teeth <laughs> and your fists and everything in between um, at, at this much of a truncation of what is very important history. But we know that there are various ways in which spirits kind of reached what is now considered to be quote unquote mainland Japan and how those kind of flourished independent of one another using different ingredients and how important they became to those local communities and were interfaced with the food and drink culture there. I guess the first time that we ever, and this we know for a fact, the first time that we know that the word shochu appeared in writing is at Koryama Hachiman Shrine in what is now northern Kagoshima Prefecture. We're talking 1559 here, where there was some graffiti left up in the rafters of this shrine that was being repaired, I suppose. Spirits being what they were, and at that time it was, it was actually shochu being what it was. The artisans or the carpenters who were repairing the shrine were very upset because apparently the head priest of this shrine who was also overseeing their handiwork, was not very forthcoming or very generous with his stash <laughs> of shochu. And they let it be known by painting some rather unhappy sentences up in the rafters. And it goes a little something like this. The head monk was so stingy that he didn't give us even one drop of shochu. How annoying. And that's what, that was hidden away <laughs> up there in the rafters of this shrine for hundreds of years until it was discovered when they remodeled it again. And now that particular piece of wood is in a, in a, uh, in a, where is it? It's in one of the main halls of a, of a museum in Kagoshima city. Um, anyways, I guess what long story short, this is a tradition, a spirit tradition in Japan that has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think it's really useful for people to know right off the bat. I know people around the world are just hearing shochu for the first time, that word, but it's not a trend. It's not new. This is Japanese history right here in a glass. That's right. I think that's a 
really great way of describing it, history in a glass. I like that. That shrine graffiti really amuses me because so many other spirits traditions, the first mentions are in the annals of some imperial or an imperial court, you know, whether it be in in China or in in Europe. And and here we have carpenters graffiti <laughs> in a shrine. <laughs> yep. And it, it speaks so much to partly why shochus remained so hidden is that it was really for virtually all of those hundreds of years, it's been a local blue collar drink. It wasn't consumed in Kyoto or Tokyo to any great degree. We're left with this hidden gem where sake has gone around the world. Now Japanese whiskey, obviously, is all the rage. And those are wonderful drinks as well. But there's this traditional craft spirit, shochu, that hasn't really gotten out of Japan to any great degree. But how it got there in the first place is also a mystery because there aren't records right? What we do know is that there was a really robust trade between Japanese fishermen and both Korean and Okinawan fishermen around this time. And so there was essentially a black market in trade between fishermen. And there are islands in between the Japanese mainland and uh, Korea and Okinawa, where the fishermen would all go meet and, and hang out and trade. And so it's possible that the distillation technology came through Korea or that it came through Okinawa. We'll likely never know which one's sure. actually most likely. There's also a theory that it came directly from China, but I, I find that theory the least credible because Japan and China were not having direct relations at that time. China would not recognize Japan as a country because Japan would not recognize the Chinese emperor as the emperor of the world. And since Japan had their own emperor, they were like, no, that's okay. We'll just keep our emperor and you guys can have yours. China refused to directly trade with Japan, which actually made Okinawa really rich because they became the go-between in the unofficial trade between China and Japan. But that's why I think probably it was either the Korean route or the Okinawan route that was most uh, likely for how the technology actually made it to the mainland. Mm -hmm. And maybe on a future episode, we'll kind of debate which one of those we think is most likely. Basically, I guess another point to all of this is that sake was being made in Japan for probably close to a thousand years before shochu was created. The best we know is probably in the 900s, so probably four to five hundred years before that graffiti showed up on the in the shrine, or when we think the technology arrived, uh, sake was actually already being sold as a commodity. So they had made good enough sake that it could be traded. So sake had been around for a long time, right? Right. Yeah, and as best as we can tell, probably the first distillate was likely distilled sake. Am I wrong? Oh, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think that's very likely. So that basically what you have there is an ultra-refined version, a higher alcohol version of sake. Probably, and this is me, this is pure conjecture, but you're probably looking at a spirit that's, maybe in the 30% alcohol range, maybe 30, low 30s. I'm not sure how efficient their stills were. Probably not very efficient. You know, they probably had something that had a bit of a kick to it and was replete with all of the really, really rich characteristics of rice and rice drinks, but not quite as elegant as what we're used to today. That's right. I think the something that a lot of people don't realize is that the 
really refined premium sake, the whole rice polishing aspect of sake, which is what makes premium sake so premium, that's a relatively recent invention. A lot of sake early on was made with, it was polished rice, but it wasn't polished nearly to the degree that it is now, which will leave you with a lot more flavor and aroma, a lot more fats and proteins and that sort of thing that, that change the flavor and make it more rich. And right. That's, I think that's a really interesting point about how rice shochu originally, that first shochu, which was distilled sake most likely, probably is nothing like what we would have expected it to be based on what rice shochu tastes like today. Sure. And, right, right, right. Yeah. And and I think an interesting thing, we're not exactly sure what the next ingredient was to make shochu, but sake was being produced all over Japan at the time. And something that the Japanese had struggled with is they realized after they'd made sake and you press the lees, so you're separating liquids from the solids and you end up with the liquid is your sake and the, the lees are the solids left over afterward, just as you have wine lees right, which would be the grape skins and the solids left over after winemaking, they wanted to use that as uh, fertilizer for agriculture. But because there was residual alcohol in the lees, it would actually damage the roots to the plants. So it wasn't actually a, a valid fertilizer source. And so with distillation arriving, they very quickly realized they could distill the lees which will extract the residual alcohol out of the lees through distillation, and they're left with shochu lees that could be used for fertilizer. And so sake lees shochu, or in Japanese, what's called kasutori shochu, was a very common style throughout Japan for actually most of the history of shochu. And it really wasn't until uh, World War II and after that sake lees shochu or, or kasutori shochu fell out of favor. And now we've, we've moved into a whole bunch of more terroir-driven styles that are, I guess, a bit more unique depending on where you go. And, and one of the big ones early on was barley shochu. This was a really, really important genesis of the shochu industry. I don't know if you could call it industry because it was all farmers and it was all being made locally and it was everybody was probably making their own shochu for the most part. Shochu made from barley, shochu probably made from millet, wheat might have been used occasionally. There were a lot of grains that went into the mix. And, you know, this was really a time when you could have called it moonshine. You could have safely have said everybody was kind of doing their own type of bathroom spirits or bathtub spirits, I guess is the preferred nomenclature there. This was probably a lot safer than using rice back in the day, because rice was a unit of taxation. I mean, you couldn't just willy-nilly be using rice to make anything you wanted. It was the staple crop to end all staple crops in Japan. It was closely regulated by the Japanese authorities, whatever authorities those happened to be region by region and prefect or whatever, domain by domain at that point. I think it was during that time that barley shochu really started to find its legs. And to this day, we still have, we have a couple of very famous and very well-respected barley shochu traditions that really have their roots in some of the oldest distilling um, practices that the country has seen. That's right. That's a great point. And it was actually, as I understand it, the, the history was that it was farmers who were being basically uh, 
punished by the samurai, the local samurai, for distilling their rice. So they switched to barley to avoid that punishment and been making it ever since. Again, the next predominant style, which actually now is the most popular style, is sweet potato shochu. Yes. And yeah, that's the one that Christopher and I both get excited about most often. But sweet potato shochu is interesting in the fact that sweet potato is not a native agricultural product in Japan, right? Sweet potatoes come from South America and they actually traveled from South America to China to Okinawa to Japan, as best we can tell. It was a farmer fisherman, again, these fishermen who would go out and trade, Riemon Maeda, he actually went to Okinawa and brought back sweet potatoes in 1705. There was a massive crop failure in 1732, so just less than 30 years later. Uh, And without all those sweet potatoes that had just started growing like mad down in southern Kyushu, uh, there would have been a famine and thousands and thousands of peasants likely would have died because there was no grain for them to eat that particular year. In fact, other parts of Kyushu, there were thousands of deaths because they didn't have sweet potatoes. But those sweet potatoes ended up saving the lives of thousands and thousands of people. The other thing about sweet potatoes is they are not storage crops. You can't put them in a basket and keep them for months or years like you can rice or barley. And so very quickly, the farmers realized that perhaps the best thing to do with all those extra sweet potatoes was to turn them into alcohol. And that's how sweet potato shochu came to be, which is probably sometime in the mid 1700s, if I was to guess. And you know, when Mr. Maeda was bringing those baby spuds up north from Okinawa, he probably stopped in the Amami Islands along the way. Amami now is where kokuto shochu is made. And kokuto is a dark cake sugar, extremely rich, extremely flavorful, very high mineral content that is used to make shochu from a number of distilleries down there, from a couple dozen distilleries in the Amami Islands. It's a really interesting style that hasn't been around all that long. Honestly, it was really codified in the tax law in 1953. But kokuto sugar shochu is a lovely type of shochu that is actually also made with rice. So we're talking about sweet potatoes right now, but um, there's a grain that is the base of kokuto sugar shochu. And then the secondary fermentation is this incredibly a just heavenly kind of black, dark sugar that is made on those subtropical islands. That's right. The kokuto sugar really is fantastic. Actually, I didn't mention, and we haven't really gotten into production methods, which I think we'll get to toward the end, but the even sweet potato shochu is almost always made with rice in the first fermentation. And then right, true. Uh, sh- the sweet potato added in the second fermentation. That was really how... Almost all of these styles were made. As far as we know, rice was usually the starter because that's how the Japanese knew how to get a really good yeast fermentation going was the same way that you do in sake, which is through a rice starter fermentation. That changed a little bit actually in the 1970s, or probably a little bit earlier. But in the 1970s, we know that 100% barley shochu started to be produced. So the first fermentation and the second fermentation, both made with barley. And what really mattered here was not so much that it was 100% barley, 
but that at the same time in the same prefecture, in Oita Prefecture in northern Kyushu, the barley shochu makers started to use a vacuum still. Traditional stills are what we would call atmospheric stills, and those end up giving you deep, rich flavors and aromas, just like you would expect from like a mezcal. Mezcal is made with extremely traditional pot still. And even new make whiskey, the reason it's distilled multiple times besides alcohol yield is because that atmospheric still is going to give you such weird aromas and flavors the first run. Shochu is virtually always single distilled. Once you put it in a vacuum still, you get these really light, clean, fruity aromas and flavors that just blew people's minds. And so it was actually not until the 1970s when that vacuum distilled barley shochu was introduced that shochu went national for the first time in Japan. Until that time, it was essentially bourbon, a deep south blue collar drink. And people in Kyoto and Tokyo would turn their noses up at it. And it was this vacuum distilled style that really turned people's heads for the first time. Yeah, the stuff is to this day, some of the easiest drinking shochu that's available, still very popular and highly accessible anywhere you go in Japan. Um, another style from down south, especially Miyazaki, I guess, is the the home or the the origin of soba shochu. Soba is same word used to talk about the noodles. Soba noodles. Um, soba is buckwheat. That started in the early 1970s. Buckwheat shochu. 1973. It's this really lovely, nutty, obviously grainy type of shochu that is now now really well respected. There's a couple of large makers. One of them, uh, the biggest one, is in Miyazaki Prefecture down on Kyushu, eastern Kyushu Island. And also Nagano Prefecture up closer to Tokyo has kind of come into its own recently. There's a number of makers up there that make well-respected soba shochu. Um, this is another one of the major styles that at least has some noticeable level of market share in Japan. Yeah, and the soba shochu can be lovely. And again, atmospheric distillation is very common in the soba world. With that, those are basically the main styles. Those styles we've just described. So you've got the rice, barley, sweet potato, sake lees, kokuto, and soba. Those probably are 99% of the shochu market. And mm-hmm. the other 1% is spread across all of the other approved ingredients, which is somewhere around 45 to 50 different ingredients, depending on how you divide them up. And I usually like to describe these mostly as what I would call aromatic shochus. So these are usually starting with a rice or barley fermentation and then adding something else that gives aroma or flavor character to the final distillate. So it's almost in a sense a third fermentation. It's often things like green tea or seaweed. There's actually milk, there's carrot, there's all of these other things that give really interesting flavors to those shochus. Usually it's from something that's not necessarily fermentable as a starch source, as is rice, barley, sweet potato, and those sorts of things. So a really interesting style. They're almost like eau de vie, I guess. It's like a they're not gin because there's no juniper, but it's like you've added another aromatic of some some sort. Christopher, what's one of your favorite aromatics? Like, what's a weird one that you can think of off the top of your head? I, I really like sesame shochu. I think that's a beautiful expression. I also enjoy um, chestnut shochu. 
That's really. How about you? Yep. I mean, th- those are both great. I really, I do enjoy the green tea. And then, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, shiso shochu. Actually, so shiso is perilla. That's what we call it in English, but that's the little green leaf that's usually under your sashimi when you go to a Japanese restaurant. And that's edible. And it's got this lovely fragrant aroma that sometimes it's referred to as Japanese mint. And I really enjoy uh, shiso shochu as well. So, in terms of where we are today, what we've been talking about is we've talked about a whole bunch of history. And the history is absolutely important because it shows us where we've been. And where we are now is just, it's, it's just night and day in terms of how far the industry has come over the, the decades and centuries. And today there are a number of very well-respected styles. I guess we could say the three internationally recognized styles have been awarded GIs, which are geographical indications by the WTO. And this is exactly the same as what scotch enjoys. Um, Champagne enjoys the same protection. Basically, you cannot make something, you cannot make a sparkling wine in any other part of the world and label it champagne. That's a big no-no. The WTO will come calling. The shochu industry has three such GIs, which is actually news to a lot of people who call this country home. If we go north to south, I guess, and we'll start probably with one of the earliest um, shochu styles anyway, which is Iki Shochu. This is a GI that can only be made on Iki Island, which is about as, I guess it's nearly as far north in Nagasaki Prefecture as you can possibly go. It's so far north that you can get it, you can get to it a lot quicker from Stephen's home, which is in Fukuoka Prefecture than you can from Nagasaki Prefecture itself. So it's this tiny little dot of land out in the deep waters between South Korea and Kyushu Island. And there's seven distilleries there that make it. And it's a rice primary fermentation with a barley secondary. And it's a very, very interesting style. Ikishochu, seven distilleries make it protected by the WTO, which is absolutely remarkable. You go a little bit south from there, southeast, I suppose, and then you're in Kumamoto Prefecture. And in southern Kumamoto, right on the border almost with Kagoshima to the south and Miyazaki to the east, you've got this area called Hitoyoshi, uh, the Kuma Basin, which is way up in the mountains, but it's a basin in the mountains with a very, very surprisingly brisk river running straight through it. And it is a rice shochu called kumajochu, 100% rice, made with the water from the underground wells of that river, the Kuma River that runs through the area. And it's a very old tradition that mostly is vacuum distilled these days, but there are still some of the more traditional styles, the atmospheric distilled rice shochu brands that are made there all of which is just divine and a very good starting point for people who are new to the shochu category. Last but not least, all the way down south at the the southern end of Kyushu Island is the sweet potato shochu made in Kagoshima Prefecture. And that is affectionately referred to and officially referred to by the WTO as Satsuma shochu. And Satsuma shochu is sweet potato shochu made with koji and sweet potatoes that are cultivated in Kagoshima, 
local water, the whole nine yards. And it is a very, very large part of the shochu industry, that one particular GI. I think what I'm, to wrap up this little ditty on GIs, I think what I'm trying to say here is that not only is this not a trend, it's not something that's new or something that was concocted by a marketing agency to lure in young customers. No, this is actually a time-honored and tested culinary tradition that is also respected internationally and has three GIs to show for it. This is japaneseculture.com, and it is worth everybody's time and attention. It just so happens that it hasn't gotten on anybody's radar yet, and that's part of the reason why we have this podcast. That's a great summary of the GIs, uh, Christopher, and, and we'd be remiss not to forget Amami with the Kokodo show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Where Absolutely. we've got, uh, you know, 28 distilleries, I guess 18 independent uh, producers, several of the distilleries collaborate and make that Kokuto Shochu. And that's the only place in Japan you can make it and call it Kokuto Shochu. Otherwise, it would be uh, uh, rum, essentially. Although it wouldn't be rum yeah, because of the rice. You'd have to label it as a spirit. That's I right. think it would just be, yeah. Yeah. And it's, a, as you mentioned earlier, just a fascinating style. And that is not an international GI, but that's a Jap- Japanese GI. You can only right. make amami shochu or kokuto shochu in the amami islands, uh, which are actually part of Kagoshima Prefecture, uh, between Okinawa and Kagoshima, essentially. And I think it's interesting, you know, for a lot of people who are listening to this and maybe don't know a lot about shochu or this is the first time they've heard of shochu, shochu is not unknown in Japan. It's actually outsold sake for the last, what, more than a decade since, what, 2000? Yeah, decade and a half. And, it, you know, there are connoisseurs here in Japan. There are bars dedicated to serving the finest shochu to their customers. And I think the reason it's not unknown is less than 1% of total production is exported, which is really a shame. And hopefully that's something that yeah. will change in the future. Yeah, I mean, you, you say bars dedicated to, to shochu. Shochu bars in, I mean, one of our favorites down in Kagoshima City has only shochu from Kagoshima itself. So they don't actually serve any shochu from any other prefecture. But I think they have over 1,500 different brands of shochu in there at any one time. And they get the new ones in all the time as well. So it's just a constant revolving door of really fascinating products. So this is, it's a huge, huge industry that provides a ton of tax revenue to the state but it really outside of Japan flies completely under the radar. And we believe that will change very soon. But as of yet, it's still, it's a secretive thing. It's Japan's best kept secret. That's right. And to give you a sense of scale, I guess around 450 active shochu distilleries in Japan, almost all of those, probably 90% are from here in Fukuoka and southward. Uh, there are a few up in the quote-unquote mainland of Honshu. There are a few up in Hokkaido, but most of the production is down here in southern Japan. It's a little funny to me that we've gone this deep into this episode without actually talking about Koji. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because Koji is actually... <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Koji is the reason that shochu is shochu, essentially. It's also the reason sake is sake. Koji is a mold that converts starches to sugars. 
in Western traditions, we use malt. We malt barley to make beer or whiskey, which you could speak to much more intelligently than I could as a former brewer. In shochu and sake, and actually soy sauce, mirin, miso, all sorts of Japanese fermentation relies on koji for converting starches to sugars. And then once those starches are converted to sugars, then the yeast can do its job. And that's what makes sake and shochu so unique. They use multiple parallel fermentation in the production process. So you've got uh, koji, and which is a, the mold, and then yeast, which is another living organism, working together, convert those starches into sugars into alcohol. That happens in a several stage process. First, you've got to cultivate your koji. So you've got to propagate koji on steamed rice, usually rice. You can also do this with barley or other substrates. Then the kojified rice or barley or other substrate is then put into a first fermentation with water and yeast, and that's left to ferment for about a week. And then from that, you add your second ingredient. So you create a second fermentation, and that second fermentation will be whatever your main ingredient is. So when we're talking about rice shochu, we're talking about a rice fermentation followed by more rice. Now, it's not kojified rice, it's just steamed rice. Or you could add barley to make the iki style of shochu. Or if you started with a barley koji, you could then add more barley to get the oita style, which is the one that they started vacuum distilling back in the 70s. And then, of course, if you have a rice fermentation or barley fermentation, you can then add sweet potatoes to make a sweet potato shochu. Uh, and then kokuto actually has to be made with rice. You can't use barley as a substrate or some other uh, right. grain. It has to be with rice to make the kokuto style. And then, as I mentioned before, for the aromatic shochus, you might then add a third ingredient, right? You might do a rice and a rice and then mint or shiso or green tea or mushrooms or milk or all these different things, right? Once your fermentation is finished, then you distill. That's your single pot still. You're evaporating the alcohol, essentially. You're recondensing it through a cooling process, and then that gives you your spirit. And that's actually why distilled spirits are called spirits, because of the evaporation. The next step in shochu is usually aging. Most shochus age three to six months and then uh, bottled after that. Typically, before bottling, it's diluted. Most shochu sold at between 20 and 25% alcohol, sometimes a little bit higher, but usually not at full uh, distillate strength. It's also uh, filtered at that time. And then that's essentially when bottling is and when it goes out for sale. So that's kind of a very, very quick explanation of the production process, which we'll get into much more detail in future episodes. We've given you history, we've given you ingredients, we've given you production. But now, Christopher, the most interesting thing, of course, is how we drink it. Yes. So absolutely. How do you tend to like to drink shochu? And Oh, geez. Well, for me, that's really easy. <laughs> um, I, I love to drink my shochu oyuari, and that's O-Y-U-W-A-R-I. It's two words basically put together. Oyu is, is hot water. Wari means cut or mixed. So it's hot water mix. I guess is the easiest way to translate that. It's kind of an old school way to do it. And it's also a, a way that doesn't translate very well when you're talking to people from other parts of the world who haven't had shochu before. But I want to just say, and I'm, going, I'm very willing and happy to stick my neck out here and vouch for this style, Oyuwari is lovely because number one, it brings out the aromas and the 
flavors of the show to itself. And one thing that we haven't really stressed yet is that authentic shochu, honkak shochu, the traditional style that is made in a pot still, it's distilled once, which is incredibly rare for spirits in general. I mean, any spirit that you know the name of wherever you happen to reside in the world, if it's famous enough for people in another country to have heard of it before, that means it's probably distilled more than once. It's gotten to a point where they've raised the alcohol percentage to some level that it makes it very cost-effective for cocktails, for instance. That would be vodka. Or it is interesting enough in terms of its aroma profile and the attack and all of the other characteristics that it carries with it, but then still has a rather generous amount of ethanol in it. Maybe we're talking about mezcal, or we're talking about, I don't know, maybe we're talking about some type of unadulterated rum that maybe is barrel-aged. Those are going to tend to be a little bit higher in their proofing. But shochu is really just what you have is what you get. You, you get one pass through the still, and then that's your spirit. That means the alcohol percentage is lower. It also means that you've got a phenomenal amount, an unprecedented amount of character from the fermentation. And that's just not normal. Now, when it's done well, and we're talking about a spirits tradition that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, so they figured out how to do it well, you might want to try it with hot water because it's just going to reveal all of these extra layers that might not be readily apparent if you just open the bottle and stick your nose in it. So I'm, I know that I'm fanboying like crazy. I'm raving, <laughs> I guess is the correct verb about Oyuari. But I do definitely think that once you start to get your head around this style, if you've never approached it before, you should start to think about trying things, especially sweet potato shochu. Try it with a bit of hot water. I would say cut it 50-50. Go 50% hot water, 50% sweet potato shochu, and see how it feels. I think that's a great recommendation. Predominant drinking styles here in Japan are probably on the rocks or mizuwari, would you say? Yeah, right. I think that's right. Yeah, so on the rocks, obviously, that's we're all used to that. But mizuwari would be cut with water. Remember, wari means uh, cut or mix. So that would be cold water uh, rather than oyu, which would be hot water. And usually in Mizuwari, you'll have ice as well. So it's ice and water and shochu. And that's a very, very light, easy way to drink. It's a very sessionable way to drink it. I guess what's become popular recently is soda wadi. So cut with soda or sparkling water. And that's become a really, really popular summer refresher. And that's really a, a way that I enjoy it. I totally understand what you mean about how Oyuwadi just opens up those really, really interesting aroma and flavor profiles that you just don't get from putting your nose in the bottle and certainly not by drinking it cold because cold's going to suppress all of that, right? Mm -hmm. But I get warm easily. <laughs> so I can't really session Oyuwadi Shochu unless it's like pretty cold <laughs> outside. And so I tend to go towards soda because that, that effervescence really opens up a lot of interesting aromas as well. So that's a common style for me. There's lots of other sure. ways to drink it, but I think we can save those for future episodes. I'm sure we'll be doing an entire episode about how to properly pour an oyuwadi, how to properly... That's like five episodes. Right, how to properly pour an oyuwadi, <laughs> right? Yeah. So that'll be fun. But I guess as we wrap up, what I'd like to think about is for people who have never heard of these drinks or never tried them, but are curious, like what's 
the if you drink this, you're going to like that. What's what are some of those for you? Like when you because you do a lot of tastings in Tokyo, at least you you did right uh, back when right when tourism was was more prevalent. And you had and it was a thing. Yeah, you were introducing shochu all the time to, to tourists. And so how would you choose or how would you help people understand it? What would you say to them about, you know, if you like this, you might like that? Right. It, that's yeah. Um, wow. Let me rack my brain. It feels like so long ago. I, the first question I used to ask people was, have you ever tried shochu before? And, and a lot of people would say yes. And that's a lie. Um, most of them <laughs> had it. A lot of them had tried soju, which is from Korea, which is a, basically it's a vodka-like spirit that's um, sweetened and even lower proof than shochu tends to be. In terms of like traditional honkaku shochu, most people had never really had any experience with it. So then I naturally went to, okay, what do you normally, do you drink spirits? Yes or no. And what do you do? What spirits do you drink? If you have a mezcal drinker, woo, that's easy. Then you're just sending them straight to sweet potato. Tequila as well, obviously. More often than not, you just had lots of beer drinkers, people who appreciated whiskey, and a lot of wine drinkers. And, you know, I guess at least just because I'll stick to the barley-based drinks just because of my background in beer brewing. But for beer and whiskey drinkers, obviously, you can recommend barley shochu. There is a lot of shochu that these days gets barrel-aged. And that's going to be very easy for whiskey fans to understand. So there's a number of entry points that I felt were easy corollaries to what people tend to drink at home. You yourself used to drink a ton of of like decent wine. So what would you do with wine drinkers, Stephen? Yeah, so with white wine, I usually would steer people toward uh, rice shochu, especially vacuum distilled. I think the, and even the vacuum distilled barley probably works in that context, but I, I found that the vacuum distilled rice shochu tends to have a little bit more elegant profile and white wine drinkers seem to enjoy that. Red wine's harder because of the tannins, right? But okay. where I ended up often taking people was to the purple sweet potatoes. So when we say sweet potato as an ingredient, that's as if there's only one kind of sweet potato. But there's about 500 right. different kinds of sweet potatoes in Japan, and about 50 of those are used for shochu production. So, right. there and the, the purple or red-skinned sweet potatoes tend to have almost a tannic quality in the shochu, and so that's where I tended to drive them. And then, of course, the easy one I think is the kokuto shochu for rum drinkers. What you need to explain, I think, to both whiskey drinkers trying a barley shochu for the first time or rum drinkers trying a kokuto shochu for the first time is that the koji adds umami. So you end up with this extra layer of flavor that people just aren't used to. And it's really interesting because when I go back to a lot of whiskeys now or some some run-of-the-mill standard runs, they taste so thin to me. It's like they're missing something. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like they got hollowed out somehow. That's right. And I think what's missing is that umami from the koji itself. And so they become really interesting drinks. And of course, you add the single distillation on top of that. So you're going to get a lot more of the barley flavor, a lot more of the cocoa sugar flavor than you get in a multiply distilled whiskey or rum. Uh, so really, really interesting to talk people through this as they're getting to know these drinks. And I'm glad we had a chance today to talk about this and give people sort of this shochu 101, this introduction. And we're going to have so much more to talk about. Obviously, you and I have been 
learning about these drinks and exploring this category for well over a decade. And we're really excited to share it with everyone. So if you'd like to learn more about these amazing drinks, please consider buying the Shochu Handbook by my host, Christopher Pellegrini. The paperback is available exclusively on Amazon.com. The ebook versions are available through a number of sites, as I understand. Please also visit our website, kanpai.us, that's K-A-N-P-A-I dot U-S, for more shochu content. You can also find me at shochu underscore danji, so that's S-H-O-C-H-U underscore D-A-N-J-I. You can find me there on Twitter or Instagram. Where can people find you, Christopher? Uh, okay, yeah. I'm I'm up for a little bit of shameless promotion here, um, self-promotion. So you can find me at Chris Pellegrini. Uh, Pellegrini is P-E-L-L-E-G-R-I-N-I on Twitter. And on Instagram, they actually let me use my whole first name. So it's Christopher Pellegrini is my handle there. Other places that you can actually see Stephen and I geeking out about these drinks is on our, our weekly Instagram live show, which is called Shochu Pros Show Tuesday. And that's on my Instagram feed each week. It's Tuesday evening in the United States, probably the middle of the night in Europe, Wednesday morning here in Japan. It's, uh, we always do it 10 a.m. Japan morning time on Wednesday. And that usually is Show Tuesday evening in other parts of the world. And since Stephen did me a solid and mentioned my book, I'm going to do the same for him. You can and should check out his book, which is called The Complete Guide to Japanese Drinks. It's an excellent resource for both shochu and awamori and other Japanese spirits. But it's also like the, the best place to go if you just want to learn about all of the drinks made in Japan. And that, of course, includes sake. You can grab it on an Amazon, but then you also should probably... Actually, I think it's better if you go to your local bookstore and check whether or not they have it first. Yeah, I guess that's it for the self-promotion. I don't think I forgot anything. Um, anyways, thank you all very, very much for joining us today. And we really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Shochu Pros podcast. If you enjoyed it, if you felt that it was useful, I know we said it was a Shochu 101. It probably felt more like a 201 or maybe even a 301. But if you felt like it was something that you'd like to hear more of, then please definitely leave us a review on your favorite, you know, podcast listening app. And basically look for us in your feed soon. We will be back very shortly with a, we didn't really even touch on it today, but Awamori 101. Awamori is just as important as Shochu in Japan. And we are excited to bring you all of that goodness as well. So this has been Christopher Pellegrini and with my co-host Stephen Lyman, both of us reporting to you from Japan. Our theme song is Begin Anywhere by the very talented Tomoko Miyata. Our audio engineering is by the incomparable Rich Pav, who also edits the fantastic Uncanny Japan podcast with Teresa Matsuura. Please give that a listen as well if you are interested in the weird and arcane history of Japanese fairy tales and legends. To all of you out there in shochu pros territory all around the world, Stephen and I both wish you a very happy kanpai. Time's up.